This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Lexipol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Hey, welcome back. You are listening, or maybe you're watching on YouTube, Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. And today we're going to talk about cold cases. And I had my own definition, but uh, funny, just yesterday, uh, the National Institute of Justice, NIJ, came out with their term of the month. And their term of the month is cold case for January 2024. How do we define a cold case and how can criminal justice research clear more cases? And they define the term cold case is typically used by law enforcement to describe a criminal case that has remained unsolved for an extended period with no fresh investigative leads to be pursued. The length of time before a case is officially classified as a cold case differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and the time frame can depend on the seriousness of the crime. Arizona, for example, defines a cold case of any crime that remains unsolved for more than a year. Well, cold case homicides and serious crimes are cold cases for several reasons. Leads dry up, virtually no evidence is available of blood, hair, fingerprint. But now we have DNA samples that lead to no matches for known suspects or people going missing for long periods of time. And we've seen a renaissance of sorts recently over the past decade or so with new forensic technology breakthroughs to help solve cold cases. But some may be solved due to the sheer perseverance and tenacity of the investigators assigned to the case. I've been lucky to meet a few, and I've got a great example of tenacity and perseverance today. Matt Hutchison seems to be fitting the mold of the latter description. Matt joined the Sunnyvale Department of Public Safety in 2008. One of those few agencies in America that have the responsibilities of police, fire, and EMS services. And Matt became a detective in 2015. And since then, he has had some amazing success in solving cold cases. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Matt Hutchison. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I've been reading about your exploits and seeing some of the links to your cases. Fascinating. Uh, you've solved uh, so many in the past few years, and you joined the Detective Bureau for the first time in 2014. By 2015, you were assigned robbery homicide. You began investing, investigating cold cases in your spare time. I love that, your quote, spare time. And then in 2020, you resumed a full-time assignment in the Detective Bureau and continued to focus on cold cases in addition to your active caseload. Amazing successes. Uh, haven't you had uh, success? And how do you do it in your spare time? Uh, you know, I, I, I've been very fortunate. I, I count my successes as, as joint successes, not just with me and, and um, my unit, but also with the families that have been waiting for the answers. I, I, I always say this, and I, I think it's important for people to know that they do the hard work of keeping these cases alive, keeping the memories alive, hope. Um, and then also the former detectives who have worked these cases for 40 years, 
they may not have known that the tasks that they're doing would would help me 40 years later, but they certainly do. If if there's a task I don't have to complete because they already did, then it moves me one step closer to the finish line. Um, I, I like to think of it almost as a, a relay race and I'm just the one carrying the baton at the end. Um, I drive, drive is how I do it. You, you have to want to solve these things. You have to be willing to sacrifice other stuff in your life or your, your work and, and just put your head down and, and power through sometimes. Nice. Well, nice that you give the acknowledgement to your predecessors. You've solved six cold case homicides and an additional three cold case sexual assaults during your time as a detective. You've looked at cases from as early as 1969, by my accounts, 1979, 1982. What types of evidence are still preserved all after all that time? So I'm really lucky in Sunnyvale that in the late 1970s, probably 78, 79, um, the chief at the time was looking at our, our success rate in court and saying, how can we make our cases stronger? And he tagged an officer and said, hey, I want you to come up with a CSI program. I don't know if it was, sometimes this happens just walking through the hall, the chief tells you that this is now your job and that's going to be your job. And uh, so it, uh, an officer named Bruce Dudley started a CSI program in the late 1970s. And obviously in the in that time frame, they didn't know what DNA was but and how it would be used in cases today. But they did know, I need to collect that fluid or that suspected blood or that victim's clothing. And so they were very evidence-minded and they collected a ton of things. So we have um, victim clothing on every single case. We have fingerprint or finger, sorry, fingerprint cards from every case, fingernail clippings, fluids that were collected at the scene. Um, when they're looking at a scene, they're always trying to figure out what's the common link between the victim, the offender and the scene. Is there a, is there a comb in the middle of the room that all three of them touched? Is there um, another discarded item, like a receipt that can lead you to the person. So they picked apart crime scenes and they collected quite a bit. Uh, it's become kind of my job now to look at those evidence inventories and actually get my hands and eyes on those items and just make sure that they're still going to be preserved because whether or not I can work the cold case, um, somebody needs to, and that evidence needs to be viable when it comes time. So yeah, well, well, tip of the cap to Bruce Dudley and no relation that I know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a good thing the chief told Bruce Dudley and not Jim Dudley, because I have a thing called the two call rule. And that is if the chief says something to me in the hallway, I just wait till he says it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, your bio says you started selecting cases in your spare time. And what was your regular uh, caseload, um, you know, for, for everybody listening? Sunnyvale uh, is nearby me, actually within 15 minutes of me. And it's what, about 100,000 people and I don't know, a hundred person agency. What, what was the road back, like back then? So the population is around 160 to 170,000 now. Um, the caseload, it, it is a safe city. You're right in saying that. We would get maybe one to two homicides a year, but the robbery homicide detectives weren't dedicated just to robberies and homicides. We would take all felony assaults, major threats cases. Um, we would take death investigations where there was some sort of suspicion. Patrol goes out to a, a dead body and there's an injury or something like that, that you may have that case for two months while the medical examiner does their thing and you interview witnesses and try to eliminate the possibility of a homicide. 
Um, and then we also take all officer involved incidents. So some, some years were more lean than others. And then some years it was really hard to try to carve out the time for the cold cases. But what, what I would do was um, we had a cold case volunteer. Her name was Carol. She was featured in the article that you, you mentioned. Um, she's a, a private citizen who would just read these cases with curiosity. She didn't have a law enforcement background. She worked in HR for many, many years. And when she retired, she wanted to challenge. So she would read these cases. She would look at the scene photos and just mark out a list. Hey, did, did you guys think about doing this? Can you do this? Is this interesting? Is this pertinent or not? Um, and sometimes she was dead on and it would be something that would be kind of a light bulb moment. Like, yeah, we need to do that. And other times it would be something like, I, I appreciate that, but no, we're not allowed to do that or that's not going to work or, or whatever the case may be. But um, I learned early on that she was somebody to listen to. And so when she brought cases forward and, and things, um, if other people didn't have time, I would take them and I'd go right to my lieutenant's office and say, I need to work this case. Can I have this case? Um, and that, that's kind of how I got my start was befriending her and, and listening to her and not taking no for an answer when my, my lieutenant said, you have enough work to do. Well, that's great. And tip of the cap to Carol. And maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need fresh eyes and uh, for people to, to look at. I mean, there's so many ancillary groups of citizens that are reviewing cold cases online and, and giving tips to agencies just like carol's doing and you know maybe I, I, yeah go I, ahead I, I would say to your point of fresh eyes um one of the things that i like to do is i like to block out i i say thank you to the former detectives but i also like to block them out um there's no shortage of of guys that have rotated out of the bureau that will tell you like oh you're working such and such case i'll tell you who did it <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to hear any of that. I want to look at a, a case for the first time with no preconceived notions. And that's kind of the beauty of Carol is that she, she's able to do that. And, and people don't come and bug her with their, their ideas on a case or their theories. Um, and I think that if you get caught up too much in the theories, you'll miss things. Yeah. And sometimes it is, you know, the, the straight line from point A to point B and, and we, we get caught up in, you know, these, uh, uh, shaggy dog stories and we go you know we bite on the wrong evidence so great great uh, mentioning carol so you had a full plate you still pick these out carol what was carol doing i mean was it just a variety of reasons that she picked out a case or something she saw on tv and thought maybe oh, hey, could maybe we could do this here um i think in my conversations with her, I think what she's, what she tried to do is she picked cases where she identified with the victim or felt some sort of a connection with them. Um, two of the cases that she worked the most were young girls who were brutally attacked and killed. And so it's, it's not hard to see a case like that and, and want to put every effort you can into it because mm. it's just such a vulnerable victim. And I think that Carol identified with those victims and, and felt an emotional connection to them. And then once she, once she kind of dug in and, and learned about those cases, it, it became a passion to her and she wanted to know as much as she could about all of the cases. Um, I, she had to move on. She, she retired from her retirement gig and, and moved away and, and is enjoying her downtime. Uh, but I hope she sees this someday because I tell her all the time, Carol, these cases aren't possible without you. Yeah. I'd love to talk to her. And it's it's interesting uh, that if that's her approach, it is opposite of what you're supposed to be doing, right? Taking a 
dispassionate, uh, evidence-based, uh, objective look at the evidence rather than having the empathy or um, you know having sympathy for the victim and then looking at it uh, in those terms. So yeah, it'd be great to talk to Carol. So she picked out the cases based on the, the sort of profile from the opposite view of not suspect driven, but victim recognized. I wanna ask you about resources in your agency um, in the cases that you've solved and maybe some that you haven't yet. But uh, first I'd like to take a quick moment and thank our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly. Serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities, Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L dot com. And we're back and I'm speaking with Detective Matt Hutchison at the Sunnyvale Department of Public Safety. Matt, I mean, I've read some of these cases uh, that you've solved. And, uh, you know, if we went around uh, our usual procedures, sometimes maybe some of these cases wouldn't be solved, but you've shown some drive and determination and some novel approaches to gaining evidence that maybe you didn't even have yet. And in one instance, you posed as a bus boy. Tell, tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, so it was, a, um, I believe, a 1996 sexual assault of a child. Um, we had good evidence. We had a, a, a male profile for DNA. Um, and we used genealogy to work back to a potential suspect pool. And once we got to that suspect pool, we started eliminating them one by one. And um, obviously, if we if we go knock on the door and say, hey, look, this is what I'm investigating. If we're too close to the suspect, bells and whistles go off, alarms get keyed, and, and this person knows what we're doing. So we don't want him to flee. We don't want him to destroy evidence. So we have to do it surreptitiously. Um, under color of darkness, we sneak up. Uh, one of the the most common ways that we do it is by collecting trash. So it's typically not very hard to look up the trash schedule in a certain neighborhood and sneak up at 3 a.m. while everybody's sleeping and take bottles and cans and whatever else might have DNA and scoot away with them before we're ever detected. Um, in this case in particular, this gentleman lived in an apartment complex, so he had communal trash, which even if we were able to watch him walk down the stairs and, and throw his bag on top of the heap, it would have been difficult to get to it because it was also a gated complex. So we would stick out. So we had to get creative. And I, I started looking at social media. What, what type of pattern of life can I determine for this guy? And I quickly latched onto his brother's social media because his brother posted really regularly. And I noticed that every year they were at the same bar on St. Patrick's day um, locally. And so I went to my department and I said, I think he's going to be at this bar. This, this holiday is five days away. I need you to trust me. I need you to cut me loose and let me do this. And fortunately they, they agreed. And so then I got a hold of the, the bar owner and um, I'm sure he wouldn't want his bar identified or him identified, but I'll say that he's a really good guy. Uh, it took two seconds of explaining who my victim was and what happened to her for him to say, whatever you need, 
we'll get out of the way, whatever you need. So uh, I volunteered. I said, I'll be a bus boy for the entire day. I don't know when he's going to show up, but I'll be there from open to close and, and I'll be waiting. So what we did is I put on the uniform and, and they introduced me to staff as the new guy and said, he's just here to help run him ragged. Uh, my feet <laughs> hurt like hell at the end of that shift. But uh, we had a couple of detectives in the bar as patrons to be my cover because I had to, I had to be distracted and moving around without any kind of protection. And then we had a surveillance element at the suspect's house to be able to give us updates when he started moving in our direction. And sure enough, around, I think it was seven or eight o'clock at night, he showed up and I made a beeline to him and said, let me get you a table. Um, I put him in a position where I could continue to watch him and collect things. And ultimately we got, I believe it was two plastic straws that he had been drinking out of a plastic cup that he had his beer from and a bunch of half eaten chicken wings. And uh, ultimately we got a one-to-one -one match on his DNA. Wow. Well, they got, they got a day's work out of you, but you solved the case. That was great. And uh, so in an APHIS case or a fingerprint case, uh, automated fingerprint identification. So uh, we can't just take that fingerprint and run up to the DA and say, Hey, I need a warrant on this. Uh, I got your guy. You've got to do some other checking to, to make sure uh, that is your guy, right? Absolutely. I, I, in fingerprints, especially where the fingerprint is, is critical. So in a 1979 case that was solved on fingerprints, but the, the homicide took place inside of a bar. So if a fingerprint is on a bar top where every customer is going to touch um, or if an entry door where every customer is going to touch, it's a lot less probative than if it is on a murder weapon or on a, on a safe that's been opened during a robbery or things like that. So, um, but even when you get that really close link to where your victim was killed or an item that was touched by the suspect, you still got to do your work. So in that case, um, we didn't know, could this person potentially have worked at the bar? Does he have a, an explanation for his fingerprints? So we kind of slow played it. Um, I, I called him and I was just speaking to him very generally. Have you ever been to Sunnyvale? Have you ever been to this bar? And of course I know the answers, but um, I let him lie. And I didn't, I didn't jump in and confront him and I let him lock himself into lies. And then I went back out to him a second time and now we're face to face and I confront him a little bit, but I don't let on just how much I'm, I'm uh, suspicious of him. Um, in that case, his fingerprints were matched to a lift that was taken during a 1977 arrest. So it was just thrown through a Xerox copier and automated from that. So you got to imagine the quality is really poor. So when I go out to him for that second interview, I'm trying to convince him to give me consent for a new lift of, of fingerprints real clean and, and nice. And sure enough, he gives it. So that one fingerprint identification becomes 17 because now we have better, better identifications. So now it's time for the confrontation and we go out and we, now we can make the, the, the arrest and the confrontation and, and confront him on his lies and, and not, not accept any of those explanations. Nice. Nice. So you, you got to be strategic on how you, how you approach these things. Of course. And there's another case that stands out and <clears throat> you talked a little bit about uh, obtaining evidence and DNA evidence from garbage collection. <coughs> and, and, and another case uh, you not as a bus boy, but you, you took a different uh, job uh, assignment. What was that? So I, I worked on a garbage truck for a day uh, down in Southern California. <laughs> nice. So 
in that case, it was a 1979 homicide, and, and we used genealogy again to work back to a potential suspect pool, and we knew who we needed to sample down in Southern California. Um, his neighborhood presented challenges. He did live in a home, but it was in a, a gated community, smaller community, so presumably neighbors kind of know each other and know who's going to come and go, and, and we're going to stick out, so we need to be even more careful about sneaking up. Um, we flew down there slept for a few hours and then woke up at 3 a.m. to go pick up his trash and his can's not out on the street. There's no, there's no can out there. Come back at 4 a.m. The can's still not out. 5 a.m. Still not out. 6 a.m. Still not out. Well, now we got to catch our plane to come home and we're going to get skunked. So we, we catch our plane to come home without any evidence, but I talked to the detective down there and I say, Hey, can you just sit down the street and tell me if he rolls his can out like right before the trash truck comes through, or maybe he's just on vacation this week and we just got unlucky. And sure enough, when I land, the detective calls me and says, trash truck comes through at 11 30, 12 o'clock. He worked his can out at 11. So now I, I'm posed with some challenges here because if I just walk up at 11 o'clock in the morning and start digging through his can in this residential gated community, I'm not going to look like a recycler. I'm going to look like a cop taking evidence. He also had a camera right above his garage that pointed down at his cans. So we had to be really careful. Um, Again, this trash company would probably not want to be identified or, or any of that, but I'll, I'll say thank you to them uh, discreetly. They didn't balk at it at all. I called them up and I said, look, I need to ride on your trash truck. We need to go to this address, pick up the entire can and drive away with it. And they said, whatever you need. I told them who my victim was and they said, whatever you need, let's solve it. So on the morning of the operation, we flew back down the very next week. I got on the trash truck. We We had to modify the truck a little bit. So we we put in a tarp on the inside of where the, the can would dump in the top to create like a, a catch basin. So all of his trash would be collected and not interact with any other um, gunk that was inside the truck because they're disgusting. Um, and we also had to disable the compactor arm. So I, I, I learned a lot about trash trucks that day. I guess when, as soon as it's dumped, the compactor arm smashes it all to the back. Um, so we had to disable that so it wouldn't disturb our evidence. So we, I drive up with the driver and I say, look, you're, that's your can. You're going to pick that can up like you normally would um, and, and just act natural. So he dumps the can into our catch basin. And I said, now you need to drive up to the next address and I want you to act like your truck is breaking down. So he picked up the can and started lifting it up and putting it down as if he couldn't get it to dump in. I said, get out of your truck and make a fake phone call to your boss and say, hey, truck 42 is down. We're going to need somebody else in this neighborhood. And he did it. I mean, he Oscar to him, he played the role and he, uh, he, he sold it. And we drove away out of that neighborhood with uh, a trash can full of evidence, took it back to the police department, laid it out on a tarp and just picked through it item by item until we got what we needed. Um, and ultimately again, in that case, we got a one-to-one -one match to the, the person that we were targeting. Awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, great, uh, effort there great uh documenting uh the way it, it all went down so you could come up with that plan was there a point where you had uh another associate in the back of the truck when when we um had to rig up the tarp we had to climb in there to, to rig up the tarp and my associate was waiting back in at the station he didn't have to he didn't have to put on the uniform and be a trash man for the day Okay, I, I was I was thinking that that was why you disabled the the arm so he wasn't crushed in there. But yeah, nobody would volunteer for that one. No. So uh, the key 
to solving these cases, you, you've mentioned genealogy a couple of times. How has the innovation of um, IgG or investigative genetic genealogy been for you in solving these cases? I, it's it's a really exciting tool. I, it, you're you're able to cast a much wider net. CODIS is obviously going to be limited uh, limited to people who are known offenders. Um, but genealogy, you can go much wider. And if you get the cooperation from family members that are distant from your suspect, you can, you can dig down even deeper. So like in a, in a 1982 case, we matched to third cousins through genealogy. And we actually went out and met with one of them and rolled out butcher paper across her kitchen table and filled out her entire family tree by hand and identified 2000 people that we didn't, we wouldn't have known about otherwise. Um, sat with us for hours and cooked us dinner. So, um, genealogy is huge, but the, the, the truth is you, you still got to get to DNA. Um, somebody who's picking up a cold case for the first time there, they might not be lucky and, and find out that they've got an unknown profile in CODIS that's been in there for 30 years. What they may more likely find is that evidence hasn't been touched and they've got to identify the right item and send it off for for testing at their crime lab. And there's a whole process that goes down. Now you've now you've got a sample. Now you go into CODIS and don't match. You try familial through CODIS, DOJ, and it doesn't match. Now you might be able to try uh, genealogy. But genealogy is not a magic bullet where you plug it into the system and you get it back and they give you an answer saying it's one of five people. Um, in fact, the company that did genealogy for us on that 1982 case said, your matches are, are so distant at this third cousin range that you're never going to solve the case. And we wouldn't even feel right charging you for, for genealogy work because it's not solvable. Um, and that's unacceptable to me. So we just keep working it and we eventually find that match. So just, just know going into it, if you're a new investigator to genealogy, it's going to take twists. It's going to take turns. There's going to be disappointments and hangups. Uh, but every, every family member that you match and every person that you put on that family tree could lead to the branch that breaks your case. So keep putting more people into your data bank and, and you'll get there. Just, you got to refuse to give up. Yeah. And, and this is exactly how the golden state killer was identified as well through distant family members. I've done ancestry and uh, 23 and me. So I'm in the database uh, we're we're having access to so many more people than are just in the criminal justice system and database. So, you know, every once in a while, I'll get a uh, hit saying, hey, you've got a new uh, relative. And I'll look at it and it's like point, you know, it's like 1.2% or something like that. And I'm like, really, what's been your experience in, in some of these connections? Like what what uh, is the smallest uh, connection to an actual suspect that you've you've gone from. Um, so the the in terms of solving a case, the the most distant one that led us back to a suspect was a third cousin. But when you look at all the matches, the the companies will give you a, a an estimate of how related they think the person is. Not just the percentage that you're mentioning, but they'll they'll actually tell you like this is the fifth or sixth cousin. Right. Um, I, I don't know very many people who can identify fifth or sixth cousins in their family. Um, so when you're getting that distant, you're, you have a tall task to try to identify people for sure. But it goes back to what I said about the more people that you can put on that family tree is important because these, you, you have to rely on these genealogists who are experts in this field. Um, we had a volunteer that is just 
private citizen. She'll never want to be identified, but she is an expert in this stuff. Uh, you mentioned I got to do police, fire, and EMS. I can't also be an expert in genealogy. So I leaned hard on her and I said, hey, find me as many matches as you can. If you tell me that this person, you need their DNA to, to plug this hole in a tree, I will go out and convince them to do it. I will, I'll find a way. Um, and I relied on her to kind of, to guide me. So find your experts. The, the FBI has genealogists or training more and more genealogists in, in different jurisdictions. And those people are, are willing to work for you. So call up your local, um, your local office and say, Hey, are any of your analysts trained in genealogy and will they help me? Um, Cause they're out there. Yeah, that's great. And so, you know, I always, um, wonder how much of our investigative techniques do we give away and uh, particularly involving sex offenders now recidivism of sex offenders is still pretty high but i wonder if uh it's not as high as it should be because we give away so many investigative techniques when we testify in court when we give over the exculpatory evidence to the defense how are you protecting your investigative uh, techniques and tactics in, in these kinds of cases? Can you, can you keep any of your um, investigation secret? So uh, specifically in that case, the genealogist that I mentioned, we're treating her as a confidential informant. So um, we have not identified her or any of the communication she and I had back and forth brainstorming things or talking about next steps and things like that. Um, ultimately, it may come down to a, a judge deciding that I have to identify her. But up until the point where I go in camera with a judge and claim the privilege and say, I, she's an informant, I don't want to identify her. Up until the point where that judge says I have to, she's going to remain confidential. Um, certain things about like, hey, on this date and time, I went to this house and I collected their trash that's going to get out. I, I don't have a, a choice about that, but um, I, I, I believe we're going to do a good job of protecting that genealogist and keeping her confidential. Yeah. Well, whoever she is, she's an unsung hero and uh, boy, we're tipping our cap to everybody today. Uh, I'm glad that we have, you know, that kind of support. How about other support um, in the cases? Uh, there was a district attorney, an assistant DA who gave you so much praise and said that the bottom line is that you're the man, uh, you're the difference in solving these cases that have gone unsolved for so many years. What's been your support from the district attorney's office? So the DA that you mentioned, his name is Rob Baker, and he he's an absolute uh, awesome person to work with. He's a partner from step one to the end. So uh, when I pick up a case, I call him and I say, Rob, I'm going to work the 87 case of such and such. Um, what are your thoughts on it? And we go back and forth and it's constant communication. We may talk three times in a day. Uh, we may not talk for three weeks, but he's somebody that I can always go to and ask questions of and brainstorm and bounce ideas. And it's good to have a person like that who's going to be of the mindset of how do we present this once it gets to court? Um there may be a lot of things that I want to do that he may have to pull the reins and go, all right, well, that that's great, but how are we going to explain that? Is there a better way to do it where we can explain it easier or protect your genealogist and keep her confidential? Um, so Rob giving me praise is, is awesome. I appreciate it. I don't deserve it all. He's, he's my teammate in this. 
Um, and I, I, I love working with him. The district attorney's office also has a, a federal grant for, for DNA work on cold cases specifically. So, um, and that, that grant not only pays for things like genealogy and updated testing, but it also pay for travel if it's a lead that's based on genealogy. And so for the last probably two plus years, uh, the DA's office has, has footed the bill numerous times for me to travel places, contact people, collect DNA and do all kinds of stuff. Um, it, just like with Carol, I, I, I don't solve these cases without Rob Baker and without the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office. Nice. Well, it's great to have that kind of relationship and to have that kind of guidance uh, and someone you could bounce these ideas off of you. So your case is bulletproof once you you take it to court. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, I am going to be respectful of your time uh, and I hope you are taking notes. I hope you're keeping a journal because you've got the makings of a great book down the road. <laughs> Hey, if you could offer one important piece of evidence or maybe a couple to a new cold case investigator, what would it be? So you mentioned earlier about kind of separating the um, feeling personal about these cases cases and passionate about them, but also just being kind of um, job set minded. I try to blend them. And I, I think that it's okay to take it personal to a certain level. And what I mean by that is, we're all short staffed. We all have heavy caseloads. Um, we all have distractions in the job. Yeah, it would be nice to to socialize in the bureau. There's a there's a camaraderie that goes on back there. Um, and there's days where my energy level or my drive to work these cases gets low. And where I personalize them is I put myself in the position of the victim's family. And I just say, would the excuse of I'm busy today be enough for that father who lost his daughter in 1982? No. It wouldn't, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be enough for me if it was my my loved one, and so that charges me back up to work these again. I personalize it as well. I, I put a picture of the victim at my computer, and I, I have access to it, so that in those moments where I'm feeling like I don't want to work it that day, I see her or I see him, and I say, "No, it's not right. That doesn't sit well with me. That I'm not doing what I can for that person." Um, we talked about the drive and the determination it takes. You have to. A lot of agencies aren't going to force your hand and say, yeah, you got to work these things, even though you're you're busy. You got to want it for yourself. You got to want it for that victim's family. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. There is evidence out there. DNA is getting more, more and more sensitive. Genealogy is just getting more and more prevalent. Um, look for creative ways. Be smart about it. Be creative about it. And, and don't give up. The last thing I would say is, Every case that I pick up, I fully intend to solve. And I, I truly believe that if if I don't give up and they let me be a detective long enough, I am going to solve it. That being said, I'm also realistic to know that I could get pulled out of the unit at any time. Every case that you pick up, you can leave it better than you found it. Always advance the ball. If you eliminate a suspect, if you if you pull apart an alibi, if you even if you just repackage evidence in a way that preserves it, you're setting up the next detective to be able to have success. So document everything, why you did it, how you did it, what you were thinking and what you didn't do and always advance the ball and make the case better than you found it. So those are my things. Um, people can reach out to me. I'm passionate about these things. I want every, every agency to work them. Um, 
don't accept no for an answer. If your boss tells you, you don't have time for that. You will make time. Um, these cases can be solved and they, they need to be. Nice. Well, thanks, Matt. Matt Thank Hutchison, uh, detective at Sunnyvale Department of Public Safety, talked about uh, DNA, talked about the advances in genealogy. And uh, I've been to a couple of trade shows and I've actually interviewed a couple of people about the, the, the advances in DNA sampling and matching. And uh, with real live cases, uh, they can do the match in as little as 30 minutes. So no reason why an agency isn't taking advantage of all of that. Uh, hey, to our listeners, uh, let me know what you think. And do you have uh, some good ideas about, uh, or a good case of cold case uh, solvability? Uh, let me know what you think. Drop me a line at policingmatters at police1.com. That's policingmatters at police1.com. Matt, thanks again for sharing. Uh, hope to read more about it. And I look forward to your book down the road. Thank you very much. We'll see you on the next one. I'm bringing two more to you, I hope. All right. Sounds good. Take care. All right. All right. Take care. Hey, to our listeners, take care out there. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again real soon.